<laughs> Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. It's so powerful and Christ is so penetrating into the needs of our humanity. We ask you to help us to let him speak indeed into our lives this morning. In his name we pray, amen. Well, have you ever had a great like Christian experience that was really powerful and, and just put you in that sort of place where you're fully engaged with the Lord? You're just, yes. you feel like you're really close to him. You're ready to change the world for him, right? It could have been at a conference or a Christian camp or a retreat or something like that and everything just kind of clicked and the Lord seemed closer than ever and you were just um, all set to march forth in his glorious name. Those experiences can be really transforming, I mean life-changing if they put you in the right direction. However, after one of those experiences there are, I'm going to use the word always, It's almost inevitable that um, after you have one of those experiences, the, the reality of living in a fallen world every day is going to blunt some of the effects of that incredible experience that you had. Um, we have this sin nature, you know, and it rears its ugly head sometimes and pulls us down. So you have a mountaintop experience, but eventually you have to come down from the mountain and live in the real world. And that's where the challenge is to maintain, not to maintain that top experience, but to maintain a steady walk and growth with God that doesn't get blunted to death and doesn't um, die off. Recently, we've been studying the greatest of all mountaintop experiences. Uh, several weeks ago, we looked at Transfiguration of Christ in Matthew chapter 17, that, that moment on the mountain when the veil was pulled back and the full glory of Christ was revealed as he will be when he comes again to three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. It's just an amazing event. It was a uh, a true mountaintop experience, literally and spiritually a mountaintop experience, and one which Peter, in both of his letters, makes some kind of reference to. It was so impactful on his life. But as is always true, you, you can't stay on the mountain. You have to come down. And eventually you come down to the valley, and last time I was with you, we, we looked at a conversation that Jesus had with the disciples as they were sort of coming down, starting down the mountain. It was all about Elijah, and remember that thing? It was a kind of interesting, verses 9 through 13 here in chapter 17. Interesting, but not one of those texts you like uh, hang your life on to when you're in really um, troubled times and your spirit is weary and you go, you know, I wonder what he means by Elijah coming once and, and uh, having already been and still coming. I mean, it's just not one of those kind of texts that grabs you that way. But today is uh, one of those kind of texts. Uh, you know, when your life is hard, uh, your child is straying from the faith, you, you hear that horrible word cancer, um, your spouse tells you they're ready to leave. I mean, when life hits in really hard ways, this, uh, what Jesus shares here is critically important with regard to dealing with all the things that tear us down in life. Jesus came down the mountain with his disciples and, and just that fact is a great encouragement. He descended, if you will, down into the valley of the real world where horrible things were happening. It was a, a mess down below. At, uh, there was a scene of turmoil and ministry failure down at the bottom of that mountain right after these guys had this incredible experience up there with him and it was an incredible experience for Christ as well. 
So while Peter, James, and John were having this amazing time with Jesus, the other nine were having a terrible time. The other nine disciples were having a terrible time down at the bottom of the mountain. They were struggling. They were, you know, it doesn't give a whole lot of detail, but they were embarrassed, I think. They were defensive. They were under criticism because they failed in what they uh, were trying to accomplish, and there were a whole lot of people around to watch what they were doing. Ever fail in your life? Anybody fail? Oh, there's two. Good. Um, I have failed as well in uh, rather profound ways at times. Life is full of failures, and, and ministry is full of failures and, and discouraging times. Sometimes they even seem to outweigh the successes, which is why you really need to thank God for the successes, right? Failure can really take its toll on you. But what you do with failure is really what this passage is about. Failure can be, as any wise person knows, failure can be a teaching tool and an opportunity for growth. So what you do with it matters more than the failure itself, what you do with the failure. So um, what do you do when things go wrong? When Christianity doesn't seem to work, at least not like we thought it is supposed to work. What do you do there? What conclusions do you draw? What should we think? What should we do? Well, let's look at our, our text today. It's starting in verse 14 of Matthew 17. When they came to the crowd, so they're down the mountain now, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him, and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. So make sure you kind of understand the scene here. Um, By the way, Mark chapter nine has a lot more detail, so I'm gonna kind of refer to that as well as we're moving forward. Mark tells the story more vividly. Um, But a multitude is there. In fact, Luke says it's a great multitude. And they're all gathered around. And Jesus and his three disciples are kind of approaching this scene. And it's a mess. And Mark says that the crowd was gathered around the other disciples. And those disciples were arguing with the scribes. So there's something going on there. And he doesn't tell us what they were arguing about. But it's an ugly scene. And they would failed to do something they thought they could do. And Mark says that when the multitude saw Jesus approaching, they were amazed and excitedly Um, They ran to greet him. And Jesus asks a question. What are you discussing with them? In other words, what are you talking about with the scribes? What's going on? And uh, what's what's all that's happening here? And at that point, that's when this distraught father steps out of that crowd and falls on his knees before Jesus and explains the whole situation. His son is cruelly tormented by this condition that appears to be both physical and spiritual. Now, in verse 15 there, it uses the word lunatic, and that's quite literally what the Greek word is. And, you know, lunatic has changed its meaning over time, so we talk about people that are goofy or nuts or something like that. That's how we use it. But that's not, it means moonstruck, which means they're um, affected, you know. It was just a way they spoke in the Greek world, ancient world. Uh, The New King James Bible puts an epileptic. It says that, and the NIV says that he has seizures, And those are all physical descriptions of what this kind of reaction this young man, this son of this father was experiencing. So it sounds a lot like epilepsy, um, but it's worse. He doesn't just lose control. He's actually intentionally hurting himself at times. And, And it's clearly a demonic power. When you read the other Gospels, it's even referred to that. I mean, it's a demon that has to be cast out. So there's more than just epilepsy 
There's something um, spiritual going on here. And in Mark chapter 9, verse 18, the father says, when it seizes him, it dashes him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. That sounds like a seizure, right? And I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. And then Luke chapter 9, verse 39, it says, behold, a spirit seizes him And he suddenly screams and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth and it mauls him. It scarcely leaves him. So he's like this almost all the time. Just try to imagine being the father of a child that's in this condition. And he's not a little child. He's older. But he's been doing this for years. I mean, it's been his condition for for many years since he was little. So it's a horrible, horrible problem. And it's been going on for a long time. But the key to the incident is what happened... um, on this day. Verse 16, he says, I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. In fact, in Luke, the way he says it is, I begged your disciples to cast it out and they could not cast it out. So, I don't know what the disciples said to the scribes and all these people or what they said to this man or or anything like that. Doesn't tell us that doesn't tell us where they failed exactly or how they handled it. We don't, we don't have their story in full, nor do we know what the scribes were saying to them. It just was not a good situation. And it really doesn't matter. It's almost helpful that we don't know the details so we can broaden out the principle and you don't get kind of locked into this particular circumstance. Um, but what matters is not so much how they were dealing with um, this person and how they failed to do it, which is a kind of a superficial issue in terms of what they actually did but the question is do they see their problem do the disciples see why it didn't work and, I, and the answer is no they, they were as baffled by it as anybody was so what's missing what's really going on here where they could not heal or cast out this demon um, because they'd done it before it wasn't like something brand new or it was odd that it, it didn't seem to work. And what we're going to find out is they lacked faith. And so that's a critical point here uh, in you dealing with your issues is coming to them with faith. So you're looking at a scene of conflict and confusion and blame and defensiveness because nobody in this world down from the mountain, nobody, that, nobody in this whole scenario, including the nine apostles, are exercising faith in this situation. So Jesus' words reveal um, his own grief at, at seeing this scene and because it's so just the world. It's just the way the world. Ever just see something going really horrible, just people at each other's throats and mistreating each other? You just, it's just painful. Well, that's how it is for Christ right here. Verse 17 Um, Jesus answered, you unbelieving and perverted generation. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. You could just hear it, the weight. Uh, It must have been like that for a lot of his life, seeing humanity and all of their fury and desperation and lack of trust in God. There's an exasperating quality to the stubbornness of human sin that hits him at times. And uh, we can see here that although God is merciful, um, we do try his patience sometimes. 
So if you ever read through the Old Testament, I mean, God's patience is being pushed and pushed and pushed by the Israelites. And here's the Son of God, God in human flesh, feeling that same exasperation with people, human beings. So look how he describes his generation. He uses two words, unbelieving and perverse. And unbelieving is faithless, and the meaning is really simple and plain. They're not trusting God. For all their religious posturing, this whole generation is marked by an incredible absence of faith. It's really staggering. He also says they're perverse, they're twisted, and, and uh, that's the basic meaning of the word, they're twisted. They're twisted in their thinking, they're twisted in their hearts, they're not straight on, it's bent, it's wrong. So the father of this tormented boy, he wasn't believing. The scribes weren't concerned about the situation in a helpful way, certainly uh, typical, you know, disputing and all of that, and um, they don't have any pity. They're probably gloating over the disciples' failure, and they're saying stuff to them about how weak they are. The multitude, they're kind of there for the show, you know? There's always the stand-around people that want to watch how everything's falling apart. People love accidents, right? The disciples were caught up in it, too, and disputing with the scribes. Instead of persevering in prayer um, or compassion, they're caught up in the whole kind of worldly thing going on here. And how often are we just like that? You know, we just forget uh, how we're supposed to be and the faith we're supposed to have and the trust we're supposed to have in the Lord and we just start acting out like the world, like lost people, like pathetic people. We all do it sometimes. We get into our own thing and uh, we crowd God out because we're into our own head and our own, oh, you're so bothersome for me. And uh, we... So we start dealing with it in a bad way. We get angry or we try to manipulate people and hurt them and all of that kind of stuff. We fight and we squabble, use each other. And that is twisted, Jesus says. That's an unbelieving, twisted way of being. So if you want to just put it really simply, we get in the way. We, you know, we let ourselves get in the way of being what God wants us to be, which are his ambassadors of his kingdom. I mean, what's an ambassador supposed to be, right? A representative, right? You go to another country and you're an ambassador, you're supposed to say, the way I conduct myself is what I want you to think about my country. And when you're a Christian, you're an ambassador for Christ, the way you conduct yourself is how you want people to think about your Savior and His kingdom. That's exactly what you're supposed to do. And when you act like this, ain't happening. So here's Jesus' reaction to all of that. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? He's clearly frustrated. He's kind of ready to go home. And that is coming. I mean, his ministry is already starting to shift, we talked about before, in preparing the disciples for his departure. He knows death is coming. The cross is coming. And having just come down from the mountain, this incredible experience. Yeah, it was incredible for Peter, James, and John, but it was incredible for him, too. It was an amazing experience. And he comes down and the people down below are just so lost. They're so pathetic. So you can see emotions on, of Christ here, a longing to return to the glory and the perfect harmony he had experienced just a few hours before with the Father and true glory. And it all, this, this mess down below is so tiresome. All this unbelief and wrangling and posturing. And, he, and he's looking for something in, among these people, including his own disciples, and he's looking for faith. And you know what? It's not there. It's not there. And it just exasperates him. 
Kind of makes you wonder what he thinks about us sometimes. He does love us, but he can be exasperated. We so often take a kind of twisted, um, a twisted understanding of God's love for us. Oh, he loves me, so I can just kind of ignore him. That's twisted. That's not a straight-on response to the love of God. It's a twisted response, and that's kind of where they are. It's kind of where we get too often. Since he loves me, I can forget about him. I can putter along in this world, and he'll just watch out for me. That's twisted thinking. So while his love is a great comfort, we should always ask ourselves, are we taking advantage of that love, or are we living consistent with that love? Isn't that a good question? Am I taking advantage of God's love for me by being a jerk or a fool or uh, a fleshly person? Or am I going to honor that love? We cause him grief. What does Paul say in Ephesians? He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Ephesians chapter 4. Faithlessness grieves God. Not acting in faith grieves God. Not trusting him, not trusting his word. We'll talk more about that in a minute, but Jesus' expression of how he is feeling about all this does not diminish his love. It's just an expression of um, his frustration. So after scolding the generation as faithless and perverted, he says, bring him here to me. He still plans to solve the problem. He's going to deal with it in compassion as he always does. But it might be helpful at this point to kind of zip over to Mark's account. So you can stick something here. Stick your bulletin in Matthew 17 and Jump over to Mark, chapter 9. So in verse 20, it says, this is a fuller description of the scene. They brought the boy to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit, that's why we know this is a spiritual thing. So Jesus uh, when, comes, and when he sees Jesus, this, this demonic presence in the boy throws him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling about and foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. For it has often thrown him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can do anything. If you have any kind of powers here, that's not exactly a ringing faith statement and Jesus says if you can if you can all things are possible to him who believes immediately the boy's father cried out and began saying I I do believe help my unbelief so he's he knows he's supposed to say the right thing I do believe and he's an honest enough man to know it's not really there yet and say help my unbelief which is a great thing to say And when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. Boom, he's healed. But the dad, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. That word can, I mean, that word means able, like has the actual power. He's saying, if you are able, questioning it, if you have power, questioning it, then help us out. That's very different. Do you remember the Roman centurion earlier in Matthew? He said, oh, you don't have to come to my house. You just say the word, my servant will be healed. Remember that guy? And what did Jesus say about him? Great faith. That's what he said. 
Remember the Syrophoenician woman who just wanted a crumb from the master's table? Even the dogs get the crumbs from the master's table, sir. Great faith, he said. Great faith. They didn't have any doubts. Jesus is the answer to my problem. They had no doubts at all. No doubts about his power or what he could bring to them. But this father is, he's got a lot of doubt. If you can, if you can. He doesn't say if you will. He says if you can. And Jesus uses this hesitant, uh, faltering request to make a bold statement. All things are possible to him who believes. Possible is exactly the same word as can. <laughs> I can. It, 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 all, things are, all things can be done, can be, to him who believes. So feeling the sting of the rebuke there, he says, I do believe, just help my unbelief. I believe, but in truth, I'm faltering. And that is a good thing to say to the Lord when you're faltering. I do, I do believe, but, I, but wherever I'm weak in that belief, help me. Help me with my faith. That's a good thing to say. That should be our prayer when we're doubting or, or just ignoring what we know to be true. Just help my unbelief. So in those moments, they could be whole seasons of life. They could be years. Some people go for years walking in that sort of uh, doubt state or that consumed with the world state, the, the ignoring God kind of situation. We have to trust him and we should acknowledge our deficiency and just like he does, I'm deficient and apply for mercy. Help my unbelief. That's how we should react. I do believe, help my unbelief. Well, well the crowd breaks up and Jesus is finally alone with his disciples and they ask him, we're back in Matthew 17 now, Verse 9, why could we not cast it out? So it's all kind of said and done. And now they want to know, what did we do wrong? Why couldn't we cast it out? And that's interesting because it points to the fact that all that Jesus just said about faith, they didn't really apply to themselves. The, I'm talking about the, tw- the nine disciples. Only the other people present they, they applied it to. And there's some important background to this question. You might, well, back in chapter 10, I'll just read it for you, but they had the authority to do this. Remember that? Matthew 10:1. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Down in verse 8 of Matthew 10, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. That was their marching orders. They carry all of that authority because these men are special. They're, they're apostles. And they've exercised this authority on multiple occasions. In fact, there's the time when um, Jesus sent out 70 disciples. He's actually got a larger group beyond the 12 and he sends them all out. That's in Luke chapter 10. And they have the same authority as the 12 have and they come back and they're just thrilled with everything that's been going. They say, even the demons bow to us, you know, they, they are subject to us in your name. So it had been part of their experience, part of their practice, but this day, it wasn't working. They couldn't do it, and they want to know why. Why couldn't we cast it out? What happened? Verse 20, Matthew 17, 20. Because of the littleness of your faith. It's your, your faith problem there. 
Their faith was too small. And they had done it before. So if you've ever served Christ with any joy or confidence and then later kind of shifted into a mode where you were being more routine and dutiful. Anybody been there? Sometimes you're like way in it and other times you're just kind of doing it. I've had that problem too, actually. We all do. We all get into those dry seasons, I guess they call it, right? Happens all the time. It's very easy to let poor habits and, or just kind of a spiritual, spiritual laziness and routine kind of sap the heart out of your faith and you're not really acting in faith, you're acting on what you know you're supposed to do. So we're not denying anything, we're just walking on our own, in our own strength, our own thoughts. We start living as, we live as if we are the center of the world, our, our, our own lives. Even if we're doing ministry, we, we act like that and we think like that and we live like that. Many, many Christians slip into that, it's normal. Not good, it's normal. It's not always easy to maintain that, that vigor and world-changing desire that we have at certain times, especially the, when we are a new Christian and we're just ready to take on everybody and we're fearless and all of that. Prayers slacken off a little. The Bible gets laid aside more often. The, maybe it becomes more of a textbook than, than a, a, a spiritual source of nourishment for us. Oh, the answers, they're in here, but um, I'm not nourishing my soul on Scripture. If we don't take pains against that, against this sort of listless Christianity, we can find ourselves operating like they were out of our flesh and the power of the Spirit is gone. It's, it's actually slipped away from us because we're not acting in faith. And we don't even know it. It just happened. They didn't know. What did we do wrong? What's, what's, why didn't that work this time? Your faith was little. Your faith was little. And we grieve the Lord. I, I, so you can kind of test yourself about these conditions, you know. There's things you can do to sort of see where you are. If love and faith and a, a healthy zeal for God are not driving us, then we're not where we should be. It's pretty simple. And we're probably coasting. And coasting means operating more in the flesh than in the spirit. And our faith is small. So the disciples had grown sort of lethargic and had, had slipped into a faithless or a tiny faith ministry. In Mark chapter 9, verse 29, Jesus' answer actually connects their failure to a lack of prayer. He says, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. And in, in Matthew, it's in there too, except um, verse 21 my Bible has little brackets here, probably does too, because in the earliest manuscripts we have of Matthew's gospel, that verse isn't there. But it is, something very similar to it is in Mark, and it belongs there. So probably some scribe was doing this and pulled over the Mark words and stuck them in here. But this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. So where was the failure? Prayer? Well, didn't they pray when they did it? Yeah. Well, if it didn't happen, what should they have done? Prayed more. <laughs> continued in prayer, moved forward in prayer, persevered in prayer. Too often we fail to persevere in spiritual battles on our knees. Instead we pick up worldly weapons. Well, I prayed, now it's time to fight. 
We start relying on how clever we are or our, our arguments or our will, our, our power to manipulate other people and bend them to our, our will and God gets just left out of the whole situation. Too often we can act like that. So we lose uh, humility when we don't have faith. We lose dependence on the Lord when we don't have faith. Those are the dangerous things that, we, that drop away. We lose the capacity to love like, we're, like Christ loved because exercising, we're exercising our faith in a very tiny way, too little and not often enough. And so Jesus is basically saying to watch out for that. Be fearful of a small faith. Small faith looks for advice outside of God's word. Small faith is when we let sin rule over us, bitterness, anger, covetousness. Small faith is just not letting God have his right place in our life. Even if God gives you incredible gifts, if you don't have faith, they lose their power. So you have to have faith. So what is faith? This is a, that's the most important thing. And here's where we go wrong because we've been influenced by preachers on TV. Faith is not just naming it and claiming it. It's not just saying, it's true even if it's not true. It's not that. It's not magic. It's not pretending. It's not a concentration of our powers. It's not just yelling louder. It's not being more emotional. It's not Yoda, you know, the Star Wars Muppet. It's not, it's, there is no try, only do. You know, there's no, it's not that. That's not faith. Faith in the Bible is in a person. It's not building up your might in some spiritual Superman way. Faith in the Bible is, a, is trusting a person. It's faith in God, not faith in yourself. It's faith in God. That's what it is. That he is all that he says he is, that his promises are all true. So the, the disciples in this case should have persevered in prayer because they had been granted authority over this very kind of situation. And when things didn't work, they needed to turn to the Lord in humble prayer. That's what Jesus is saying you should have done. Amen. And they didn't do that. So when you read about faith in scripture, it's faith in God. That's what we're talking about. Not faith in yourself. And so many people misread that or misunderstand that. Verse 20. He said to them, because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. And nothing will be impossible to you. Wow. That's quite remarkable. Mountain moving faith is the size of a mustard seed. Now, a mustard seed, in fact, look at your Bible, look at verse 18, and look at the very end of it, and the last word, and look at that little thing after the last word. It's a period. A mustard seed is about that size, if you've ever seen one. They're tiny, tiny. It's the tiniest seed that the, that the Jews dealt with in terms of their experience planting and things like that. So, he says, if your faith is just that big, you can move mountains. That tells you how little their faith was. It wasn't even that big when they were trying to deal with this demonic situation here. Prayer is powerful 
because prayer connects us to a God who is incredibly powerful. And even if you have just the faith of a mustard seed size, that's enough faith to move a mountain. So if you want to see things change in your life, you're going to have to trust God and put your faith in Him and be with Him. You're going to have to believe Him. And believing Him means believing His Word as well and being in this book and loving it and knowing it and trusting it. You can't isolate this text from the rest of what the Bible says about prayer. Obviously, there's other things about prayer we know. James 4.3, the motives have to be right and not selfish when you pray. 1 John 5.14, this is the confidence we have before him that if anything we ask in his name according to his will, he hears us. Obviously, you're praying according to God's will. God is sovereign, right? Psalm 66, 18 tells us we must be an obedient people. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. So I have to be a confessing Christian that deals with my sin. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 says plainly that God will have trouble answering the prayers of a man that doesn't understand his wife, that doesn't try to understand his wife. I'll say try. Can't really understand them. But we seek to understand them and meet their needs. If you, don't, if you don't take care of your wife and care about her needs, God doesn't hear your prayers. That's what Peter says. So there's a lot involved there. But all that assumed, prayer is unbelievably powerful to change you and to influence the world. I know people were praying for me when I was in Africa this last week because what happened there was too amazing to know, not know that prayer was behind it all. And if you were praying for me and what was going on there, you should be very thankful to the Lord because he is powerful to do amazing things. Somebody posted this, I think it was Jenny the other day, on, just a day or two ago, and I want to read you this. Was on a, it's a story on LifeSite News about Brian Wheelock. He was a man that was just steeped in homosexuality. It just, he kind of uh, he moved out of the country, went to England, and he had these desires, and he just went full bore in that lifestyle for years, 100% into it. He wasn't a believer at all. He didn't have any Christian background. And it's an amazing story of faith. Because when he got to where he was disgusted by himself and uh, depressed and going through this whole thing, he, he couldn't see his future. And he wrote in his own journal, he said, just went home with a guy I know from work and hooked up. I can't believe I did that. This has to be the last time. I'm so done with this life. Though my feelings are real, I just don't think I'll be happy 20 or 30 years down the road living with some guy. Somehow it isn't, doesn't seem right. And then he wrote this. He had no idea of the gospel. He wrote, last night I had a dream, a vision from God. I dreamt that I got married to a girl who has a medium build with long brown hair. She was beautiful. Together we had three or four kids. It was hard to tell, but I could clearly see the oldest, a girl with beautiful girl with long brown hair. She was twirling and spinning with flowers in her hair and the biggest smile on her face. Now, he wasn't a Christian when he had this dream, but it, it kind of influenced him. And so when he came back to the United States, he says he immediately uh, started going to church. I just knew I had to get to church, he says. I found a solid one and began attending regularly. I could sense the Lord speaking to me directly through his word and through the solid biblical teaching of that church. I knew the Lord was showing me that homosexuality was not his plan for me. Over the next several months, the Lord showed me how he died for my sins and paid the price for them on the cross. I began to pray specifically about what to do about my homosexual feelings and identity with that lifestyle. What happened next truly changed my life. 
the Lord led me to write out a written covenant between him and me. I used the best paper I could find. In my own hand, I wrote out a promise to Jesus directly that I would seek him with all my heart. I wrote a promise that I would purge my house and life of all things related to that lifestyle. I promised to glorify God with my life and to live the life he had for me. And then knowing he would be tempted, of course, by same-sex attraction, he made this plan, and his plan was this. Focusing on the Lord and what he has done for me, taking two deep breaths. In other words, every time he feels this temptation, this is what he did. Focus on the Lord and what he's done for me. Take two deep breaths. Pray and cry out to God for strength. Read and meditate on scripture out loud. Enter into communion with the Lord. Pray for obedience. Develop an accountability partner and pray to be a light in this world and spread the word to all the ends of the earth. That was a, that's what he planned to do every time he felt a temptation. And he did it. And, and he also did something else. Whether he was feeling tempted at a particular time or not, that covenant he wrote out, he repeated it out loud two times every day. Every day. First thing in the morning and before bed at night. And he also had a, and there's pictures of this, he had lists of, of uh, lines where he would sign and date every time he read that covenant out loud. I mean, every morning and every night. It's just pages and pages and pages of him fulfilling that obligation he made for himself before the Lord about his commitment. And this article I read, it says, Wheelock now keeps his written covenant in protective plastic sheathing, sheathing along with those hundreds of daily signatures. He says, the Lord did something beyond my comprehension. He set me free from my life of lust and sin and gave me a life of love and trust in him. It wasn't easy. In fact, it was really hard. But being this committed to following the path Jesus had for me allowed me to find who I was in Christ. People sometimes ask me, so praying this prayer made you straight? Great question. No. Praying this prayer allowed me to find Jesus and fully focus on him and what he had planned for me. It would take a few more years of staying close to Jesus that he would finally allow me to meet the girl of my dreams, my soulmate, Pam. So he meets this girl, Pam. They start dating for like nine months and finally asked to tell her what his background is, right? And he does. And she says, you're such a godly man. It's okay. She's, let's get some ice cream. So uh, that's, that's, what, that's what she said. So they got married. They've got three girls and um, three daughters later. And he says the Lord's blessed his marriage. He says, quote, I look at my girls and cry. If I didn't yield myself to the Lord and follow his lead, these little munchkins would, wouldn't even exist. It overwhelms me to think that I, an entire generation, my kids, their kids, and onward, wouldn't have even been possible if I didn't embrace the plan that Jesus was showing me. That is the power of faith. That is mountain-moving faith, isn't it? He moved a mountain that our whole culture tells us can't be moved. In fact, it's against the law to help people move that mountain. But you know what? When the state passes laws against helping people move mountains, God's grace helps them move mountains because he is more powerful than our government. The point is, mustard seed faith, which moves mountains, is tiny, but it's a living thing. It's a genuine article, and it does not give up, and it does not seek for solutions outside of what God has revealed. It trusts 
And that's exactly what Mr. Wheelock was doing. He was trusting. And if things don't work out, well, faith knows where the problem is. It's not with God. It's here. And that humbles me and casts me back on his mercy. And I pursue him with my whole heart. Faith knows where the problem is. Mustard seed faith sees problems as our problems. Not everybody else's problems. Not God's problem. It's my problem. And often our own wicked hearts are the last place we look for our problems, but that's where they are. So we should know to examine ourselves. Are my motives right? Is God's glory my primary concern in what I'm doing and thinking about? Am I being disobedient in some area? Can I be content with God's timing? Frequently, God holds answers to awaken us to these things and he will reveal them to us. He'll show us our lethargy, our pride, our covetousness, whatever the thing is, our wrong motives. So what matters is being rightly related to him and pursuing his will in all things. Jesus, by the way, is the perfect example of that, right? God's plan was that he should suffer for the sins of the world and that was in no way a pleasant and desirable experience. It's something you, any being would recoil at except it pleased the Father. And he recoiled at it. You remember in the garden? What did he pray? If it's possible, take this cup away from me. If there's any other way to achieve salvation, take this cup. But not my will, but yours be done. That's the perfect model for this. It's fascinating to me that just after Jesus says, nothing shall be impossible for you, um, he says this in verse 22. When they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. So there's a difference between moving mountains and personal safety, isn't there? Nothing's impossible if you believe. And Jesus can move any mountain he wants to but he submits to the Father's will in going to his death. So it doesn't mean there's not trials and troubles and pains and difficulties in life to have faith. You could have the greatest faith in the world and suffer deeply. He did. But it's how you react to those things. It's how you live in those times of suffering. So we, we have to submit to his will. So if you recall, when it comes to the last hour before his arrest, Jesus was praying earnestly for God to take that cup away but he said not my will not my will not my will that's the secret not my will but yours be done so to be able to say it to be able to say not my will you've got to have faith or you won't be able to say it and that's the faith that moves mountains not for my convenience not for my pleasures but for the kingdom of God and the advance of that kingdom and for the God's glory that's what it's all about. Those are the mountains we want to move. We want to move things forward for the kingdom of God, not just so we can have a good life. And when we do what he wants and we trust in him, he gives us grace to find peace and joy, even in great trials and afflictions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the example of our Lord and Savior and for the grace you pour out into our lives. We know we're going to have times when we're drifting we're not being what we should be. We're not doing what we should do. But may we, by your own gracious power, be aware of where our problems are and submit and commit to doing the right thing because there is where transformation lies. There is where effective ministry lies. 
There is the answer for our failures. And we ask you to help us be wise, have open eyes, open hearts to your leading. And give us faith, even if it's that tiny faith of a mustard seed, to move forward and please you in our service. All this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.